Content warning. The Silence Voices Stories of MST podcast discusses sensitive and potentially triggering topics related to military sexual trauma. We want to provide a safe space for survivors and those seeking to understand these issues better. Please be advised that the content may not be suitable for younger audiences. Listener discretion is advised. If you or someone you know is in need of support, please consider seeking guidance from a mental health professional or a trusted resource. Welcome to Silence Voices, Stories of MST, hosted by Rachel Smith. This podcast is dedicated to giving a voice to military sexual trauma survivors. Each week, we'll bring you powerful stories of courage, resilience, and healing. Join us on this journey to create awareness, spark dialogue, and drive change within the military community. It's time to break the silence and amplify the voices of those who have been silenced for far too long. Listen in and become a part of a movement that's shaping the future. Voices, stories of MST. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest episode of Silence Voices, Stories of MST. As always, I'm your host, Rachelle Smith, and today I'm so excited to introduce you to my guest, Jay. She is one of a kind. She is one of the most interesting people I think I've ever spoken with. And her story is one that I think will stick with you for weeks to come. She is very intelligent, so driven, and she has created purpose out of her assaults to try and help others. In this interview, you'll hear about it. There is a research study that she conducted to really explore the impact of MST, not only on the survivor, but the impact of their surrounding community. And I think that is information that we all really need to look out for in the future. So I will keep you updated on that. But I would say Jay is the embodiment of great things come in small packages. In the interview, she shares that she is of small stature, but when you listen to her and her determination, you feel like you are talking to Shaquille (laughs) O'Neal. I'm very excited to share this interview with you. And I hope that you really learn something and connect with Jay just like I did. If you want to reach out to Jay and learn more about her research study or just pass along some words of encouragement and thank her for sharing her story, all you got to do is hang around till the end of the episode and I will share details on how to reach her. Hi, Jay. Thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you doing today? Hi, how are you? I'm doing great, actually. Uh, So let's just dive in. Thank you for your service, of course. And which service did you choose? I was in the army Mm, for 17 and a half years and retired as a sergeant first class. And what influenced your decision to join the military? Well, my family life wasn't that great. There was some alcoholism and there was some domestic abuse. And so I had a boyfriend who was in the military, three years older than me, and I ended up getting pregnant. 
my parents weren't having that. So I had to have an abortion to get into the military. That was the only way for me to be with him. So that's what I did. At 17 years old, I joined the military and my parents signed for me to go in. So even just starting with your military experience, you had a huge life-changing decision to make. I definitely want to say thank you for your service and, and making such a sacrifice at such a young age. I mean, I can't imagine. So you went into the service with trauma. Absolutely. My goodness. And when you went through basic training, was that on your mind at all? Yeah, I was very determined to stay in the military, that I did not want to go back home. My grandfather had committed suicide in March of 78, and I went in in June of 78. So there was a lot of things going on at my home that I just needed to go. And so that's why I end up staying so long. It's just my own determination to make it on my own. Oh, I hear you. And I completely respect that. I think think that like it's a big reason why a lot of people join is because it's a way to get away. But also you have a sense of stability, even though the military is straight chaos most of the time. <laughs> it's it's stable chaos. We can call it that. So since you were looking for an escape and something new, did you have any sort of expectations going in? Well, my mom didn't really like let us cook or anything at our house. So I didn't have a lot of cooking skills, but that's the MOS that I chose. So I figured this would be a way for me to develop some skills to, you know, use cooking. You're always going to need to, people need to eat. I mean, that's true. You can't deny that. That is a fact of life. thought that would be a good skill for me, a natural kind of skill that I could do. And it was also the, the only place that I could go to be with my boyfriend. I needed that MOS. Mm, okay. Yeah, I can see your train of thought there. Uh, what MOS was that? 94 Bravo. Mm, 94 Bravo. Okay, got it. So what was it like when you, you got that MOS and you finally made it through basic training and boom, you're a service member? What was that whole process like for you? Well, because the trauma happened during my training, it didn't really work out with between my boyfriend and I. We did get married, but it didn't work. Oh, okay. So, wow, you really experienced like extensive and big losses right there at the beginning of your career. Yes. I just can't imagine what it was like to wrestle with all of that mentally. And you were at such a young age. A teenager. Just, yeah. Just what a huge transition. Wow. That is so tough. So was it your first duty station? That's where your experience with MST, is that where it happened? Actually, it happened right after basic training. Mm -hmm. It was during my AIT. During basic training, you know, you, you go and you do KP in the mess hall. And I kind of felt a bond with those people already because that's the MOS I was going to go into. So I was very astute and listening to everything they told me. So when I went into AIT, they, one of the cooks pursued me in AIT and I ended up going to his home because he said we were going to watch a movie with another couple. But when I got there, there was already another girl there 
And that was the girl he took into his bedroom and left me with his roommate. And they turned up the music really loud in their room. And he pulled me into his room. And not only did he rape me, but he beat me up and I had a concussion. He bit me all up and down my arm and punched me. So I still have a little bit of a red mark underneath my eye all these years later, what, 40 something years later, 45 years later from being punched. And so afterwards, the other guy took me back to the barracks and just kind of dropped me off like trash. And because I was in training and my clothes were ripped and I was bloody, the drill sergeant called the police and the MPs. So there was an MP report, CID investigation. And I was at the hospital for a day or two. What monsters. Ugh, I am so sorry that happened to you. And then they told me if I told who it was that I would be kicked out of the army. And I didn't know what the rules of the army. I was just in training. And that they would also make my life miserable and they'd hunt me down if I told anybody. So I had to report the rape itself because I was bloody. I had missed curfew. There were so many things that had happened that there was no way to not tell that I was raped, but I just wouldn't tell who did it. And so my parents did come down and try to get me out of the military. But as I mentioned at the beginning, I refused to go home, even in the commanding general's office where he said, I will let you go home with your parents today. I said, no, I don't want to do that. So I stayed in. And then less than a month later, an instructor picked me up on my way home, walking back from the like a PX area. And he said he would give me a ride to the barracks and then he didn't take me to the barracks. He took me to his quarters and then he told me that I needed to come in because he needed to go get something and it was gonna take a minute. And I said, I didn't wanna go in. And he's like, well, I'm not gonna take you back if you don't come in. And I couldn't walk. I didn't even know where we were. And so I went in and he put moves on me and I ran in the bathroom. This is the, what I remember most about it was I ran in the bathroom and I was crying and pleading to please just take me home because he had already known that I had been sexually assaulted before because he was an instructor in my AIT. And so I told him I didn't feel good and please could you just take me back to the barracks? And he said, okay, I'll take you back to the barracks if you just come out. I eventually had to come out and then he just tore my pants off and raped me. Oh my God. And I never reported that one because he told me if you report that, they're never going to believe you because you already said you were raped once and now twice. So you're definitely get kicked out of the military. So that one never got reported. This is only probably the second person I've told that second story just because it does make you feel like you're stupid. Yeah, I, I can really understand that. It just does. And- There's just no way to to like justify the reckless behaviors that you have afterwards, that you're kind of in a fugue or a fog and you're just not capable of making rational decisions. And sure, in hindsight, you can look back and say, that was really stupid, but I just wasn't working with all my capacities. Oh, definitely. And it it really feels like when you've gone through something like that, parts of your brain just shut off and you go completely into survival mode. So like all your body's concerned with really is eating, 
drinking water, sleeping, and you are wore down to your most base instincts. Especially on the second, the second occurrence, because I had already been hurt Mm -hmm. the first time. Like I had already had a concussion and all, and I just didn't want to be hurt. So you just kind of like divorce yourself from what's going on and just survive. And you know they're going to take you back because they can't really kill you because they're in the military. You're, that's what you're hoping, that they'll just take you back. So those were my two mm-hmm. occurrences, and they happened within a month of each other. That is just so awful. And again, I'm I'm so thankful that you are sharing this with all of us because I don't think a lot of people truly understand that it does actually happen like that regardless of if you're in the military or not, if you experience sexual assault, the likelihood of you experiencing it again in a short amount of time is actually very high. So yeah, it can happen to you multiple times because since you're in survival mode, like yes, your guard is up, but also it's not in a way. And it's a really difficult phenomenon to explain, but the likelihood of it happening again is actually very high. And it's a sobering fact. Your confidence is kind of gone. Yeah. I think that's what a lot of it boils down to is that you just your self-esteem and things are you just don't feel you feel kind of worthless and I don't Mm -hmm. I can't really explain except that it's you're not making good decisions because you're not recovered no it's like you lose part of your soul or humanity whatever you want to call it it just turns off yes and I think like you were bringing up about being military sexual trauma being a little bit different than other sexual trauma is that we come in the military thinking we're going to defend our country and we can't defend ourselves. Yeah, that's a huge part. That works on you. It does. And from my own personal experience, I grew up in the Air Force. My mom was in uniform for over 25 years. So to me, that meant that military people were family, regardless of the service, they were the source of my sense of community. And then the unthinkable happened. And I think the only way I could really explain what that was like was it was like I lost a core piece of my identity. It, it was like understanding that the world worked in a certain way, like one plus one was always going to equal two. And then all of a sudden, one plus one was any other number. And it, it shatters you. It, it absolutely shatters you inside. Could you share with us what your mental state was like after these occurrences? Like, and you still fought to stay in the army. It took me about five months to get through AIT because a lot of doctor's appointments. The mm-hmm. second one, I had gotten an STD. And so it took me until January, from August to January, to graduate. So that was the first hurdle. And then I went to my new duty station in Fort Knox. I got married. I got divorced. <laughs> After that, I was pretty much on a mission of just reckless behavior. Mm-hmm. I had multiple marriages that did not work out. Some are very abusive, so I spent more time in the hospital. I had a lot of STD flare-ups that also caused problems in my marriage, even though it was from previous, it still seemed suspicious to the, that person. So that caused problems. 
it took about 12 years. It took me about 12 years to really get a hold of my life. So some of that was just maturing naturally, you know, in age. Then I was selected to be a drill sergeant. That helped with my confidence and going through drill sergeant school again. At the time I was single. And I think making it through drill sergeant school helped me realize you can do stuff. You know, you're smart. You're not broken. That's so empowering. Then I met my husband because he was a drill sergeant. And that's kind of what brought me out of that fugue and out of that 12 years of just reckless and bad decisions. So we're saying from 1978 to to about 1990 that you were just in pain. Yes. Just no counseling. I didn't, I just ignored it. I did everything I could to distract myself. I became a stellar soldier. I was promoted above my peers. I had typing skills and stuff because of high school. And so I ended up coming from the mess hall, the actual kitchen into the office because I had typing skills and, and organization skills. So that helped me also have more confidence that, you know, I could do things. But you really just lose your whole confidence about what kind of person you are and that you can even do anything. Like, will you ever be successful kind of thing? And it takes a while to work through and have some success. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, I've been there. Uh, that's definitely true. Could you share what it was like to be a young woman in the Army in the 80s? So I came in in 78. So when we first came in, we still wore whack uniforms. Oh, uh, what a throwback. <laughs> yeah, the whacks um, disbanded in 77. And we had, in 1978, we had two platoons of females and two platoons of males in the same basic training. And there was just a wall, like a particle board between us. So that was the first thing is that we were all mixed together in training. So we trained right next to men. But once you get into your job, my first problem was my name is Jay. So they sent me to a field artillery unit where there were no women. Oh no, yikes. So they didn't even pay attention to the gender that was on my thing. So I got there and I was there a week before they found another place for me that was at headquarters of the same unit, but it was at headquarters where there were other females. Then they had to find a place to house me. So just all of those things makes you feel like you're not important. I could only imagine. They're not ready for you. And then you can't tell by the camera, but I'm only like 4'11 and about 115 pounds. So I'm tiny as well. So that's a factor when you're trying to do things in the mess hall, lift things and, cause things are big. And just like everybody making comments about your body, for instance, we wore cook whites and you could see through them. I mean, you could see your underwear. And when you got hot, you'd have to take off your shirt. And when you took off your shirt, you had on a white t-shirt. So pretty much your body is exposed all day long to everyone. Lots of comments about your body, lots of nicknames. People called me snack pack, you know, lots of comments about your your butt and your boobs and you know just those kind of things also keep you down keep you on high alert and it kind of creates that environment for sexual assault 
So I just wanted to make sure I pointed that out. But up until I retired in the 90s, it was still very sexist, still very, even as a drill sergeant, other drill sergeants made comments about my body and soldiers try to proposition you. I used to carry a ball bat when I had CQ because soldiers would stand at the top of the stairs in their underwear with their arm up on the wall and be like, hey, how are you doing? It's yeah. gross. And so these people were maybe 12 years younger than me because I would have been like 30. Um, and I'm like, get in bed. But it's just kind of gross how the attitudes, I'm a female drill sergeant. There are male drill sergeants. You don't do that to male drill sergeants. Oh, of course not. <laughs> so that's just kind of how the entire my time in the military was, is always making comments. There were men making comments about, you know, your body and didn't think anything of it or just saying things about how you good you look in something. Wow, you really look good in your greens. Now, you can say, you really look nice in your greens. That's okay. But you really look good in your greens is different. Ooh, yeah, there's this... There's the tone difference and then the added innuendo. It's, yeah, I, I could... I just feel gross hearing the difference. Absolutely. So those, I feel like our generation of, of the cold war, the cold war women, we were kind of like what you're talking about, the silenced group. We didn't talk about it. There was no one for us to report it to. There are no agencies. There was no sharp or sapro or any of those right. things. It was either stay in or get out. There's your choices deal with it or leave. And in terms of your leadership, did they just join in on this behavior? Absolutely. Especially, and then you would probably not be surprised, but even commanders would say ignorant things and laugh with them. You just kind of either ignore them, walk away, try to laugh it off. I mean, I had already endured how many years of the military. This little bit of talk that they're doing isn't going to make me leave, but it still doesn't make it okay for them to do it. But that is the atmosphere that's in the military is very sexist and very just degrading is the best word I can think of. The only thing you're worth is how good you look in your uniform. That is just so sad to hear because not only did you go through so much just to join and stay in the service, you have your whole community piling in on harassing you and and your female peers and it really cements and reinforces this idea of I'm small these people don't care anything could happen to me and pardon my French but none of them would give a shit they'd probably just laugh about it no no one's gonna care who's gonna protect me who's gonna believe me and that has really created this insulated culture where people that behave like that are protected and safe. Absolutely. And I believe that it still exists, just better covered. Yes. And we'll get to that in a minute. But I do have a question that is horrifying and probably happens to plenty of people in the service. But did you ever run into the people that assaulted you throughout your career? I did not run back into them. Even the instructor, I had already had him, so I didn't end up in his class again. And then once I left Fort Jackson, I never went back to Fort Jackson. So no, I never did come in contact with them. And surprisingly, 
I can't even remember their names. I don't know if that's surprising because that is just part of your protection. That makes total sense because, you know, when you go to a mental health appointment and they have you fill out those uh, assessments, like the they have you fill out the GAD-7 for anxiety, and then there is the PHQ-9 for depression, I believe, and then there's a whole PTSD one, which is the PCL-5. And the questions will be back to back. Yeah. Are you affected by vivid memories of the traumatic event or the next question that follows it is are you having difficulty remembering details of the traumatic event so both of those things can be true and it sounds impossible because these are two very conflicting like they're complete opposite experiences but again they both can be true and it's because your brain is doing so much to protect you and it's not like you are in a state of denial like you might be in a light state of denial but you you still know you still know what's happened to you but your brain is also kind of giving you this cushion because it's like when a circuit breaker overloads like you just shut down like all the lights go off you know like it's it's just too much for your body to process yes at once Okay, so you retired in the 90s, and you found your husband toward the end of your career, which is absolutely lovely, but what was it like for you to try and function as a civilian after all of this, and basically the Army is all you've known since you were 17? Yes. I um, had three years of college while I was in the military, and so I finished my college, and I became a substitute teacher, so my degree was psychology to start with. Then I decided I liked that. So I got a master's in teaching and finally became a teacher. So that's kind of where it starts being a little more me noticing that I'm not the same as other people. Like I didn't really fit in that elementary teaching role because I was too, I would say structured, too rigid, too um, black and white. The school system calls for a little bit more of that wishy-washy middle ground gray. I was always trying to excel, excel, excel. Well, that's not always appreciated. So I lasted about eight years as a teacher. I did win teacher of the year, the third year, and I was voted the top five teachers in Nebraska my third year, but that just wasn't enough to keep me there. Yeah, I can understand that. You, you feel like you don't belong. People just look at you as the crazy veteran, but I feel yeah. like that was my identity. You know, another guest had mentioned that when she started therapy after leaving the Air Force, she said her therapist found this common thread with veterans where they felt like this because... When you're active duty, it's like everything's a fire. Your brain's constantly on and it's go, go, go. But then when you start a civilian job, the pace is different. So it's stressful for us. Not expecting excellence all the time, it seems. <laughs> yeah, and you can like, you can just phone it in some days and that's okay. Yeah, but like I was always on. Felt like I was always trying to improve things and be the best I could be. And like I said, that's not always appreciated by the peanut gallery. 
So when you were studying psychology, did you start to recognize that you had some PTSD symptoms? I did. I actually filed for, when I first got out in, I think it was 95, I actually did file for what back then would have been just PTSD because there was no acknowledgement of the term military sexual trauma. But when I went to my CMP exam, it was a man, and he said that I had histronic personality. That is the most sexist diagnoses, and I don't even think it's used anymore. It's that bad. It's written on my paperwork because I read it just recently because I was testifying for the Department of Veterans Affairs, and I read it in the report. Like, I had never seen that before. And I could not believe that he put down that I had histronic personality when I was explaining my rape. So awful. So anyway, I did not get any PTSD. I was given 10% for scars that I have from assaults and hearing loss and tinnitus. And then I haven't mentioned this yet, but I also have never been able to have children. So I had loss of creative organ, loss of use of creative organ. All of that together was 10% plus that loss of creative organ stipend. That's what I got when I got out in 1995. I honestly just have to sit with that for a moment because that is mind-blowingly insane that you were treated this way. So again, I didn't get validated. So in the 90s, when they kind of revamped the way they were handling military sexual trauma, they sent me a letter. I ignored it. Because you had to have new evidence. I already had an MP report. I already had a hospitalization. What else could I have given them? So I didn't do anything with it until 2005 when I once again put in a claim for military sexual trauma. By then it was a thing. I still was only given sleep disorder for 30%. I just, I can't even begin to. That's 2005. That's 10 years later. And Yes, all this time that I'm learning about things that are happening with the VA and they're doing better to help you. I did think about going back, but just getting the sleep disorder really triggered me that day. It was terrible. I tried to go out to eat with my husband. He ended up taking me home and I just went to sleep. And I was thinking if I have to do that again, it's not worth it. So after starting my research, I started getting a little better a little stronger, a little more knowledge, because knowledge is power. And in 2018, I refiled one more time with all of my Bible of evidence. And that time I did get 100%. Congrats. And that's after how long? 40 years after the assaults. 40 years. That's absolutely ridiculous. And did they do back pay at that point? Like, how does that work? Absolutely do not do back pay and it was only from the time of my last claim which was 2018 i saw that there's some legislation they're working on to try to you know get something kind of like what they have with the pact act and that they had with the nemer for vietnam but as of now there's no back pay i swear my my eyebrows just hit my hairline hearing what you've had to deal with that is disgusting to me And have you used the VA for healthcare throughout your life? I had used them a few times, but okay, this is going to sound maybe a little crazy, but I'm sure there are people out there who will identify with me. When I walk into the VA, all those men are sitting there in the waiting room. That bothers me. The smell, I know this is weird, but the smell of the hospital bothers me because I spend a lot of time in the hospital. And... The fact that the one that's here in Utah, 
the women's clinic is in the center of the building. So you have to maze your way to it. Like you're hiding us. If you need to hide us, give us a separate building. I mm -hmm. have used only the telehealth here. And there's a CBOC that's five miles from my house that is brand new and it's excellent. And there's a female um, nurse practitioner there who I, if I need blood work or anything, I do that. But as far as going to the VA, very few times and the times I did go were traumatizing. And I didn't even mention to you the parking lot and the parking deck is dark and there's no one out there. There's no one out there. And they, even if they tell me there's cameras out there, you're not out there. And that's a valid concern because what's the camera actually going to do to protect you? So anytime I've went, I've taken a chaperone with me. And the fact that you feel that you have to do that is so sad because this is the VA. This is where we should be the most safe. Yeah, but we are the minority. We're also the minority when they're thinking about providing services for us. Even though the ones we have here have been really good for me with telehealth, there's still this feeling of not being important enough to have our own thing. I can empathize with that because every time I went to the VA when I was living in Houston, and that place is a huge complex, but um, whether I was there for blood work or mental health or women's health, something like that, like I was hit on by men that were twice my age. And they know exactly what they're doing. They know yes. they're making you uncomfortable, but they don't care. This is the behavior that they got away with while they were in the service, and it's still happening here at the VA. Well, I'm just trying to get to an appointment. And they keep doing it. That's the part that bothers me, is like, I I could have gone there literally wearing like a sweatshirt or a hoodie and some leggings, and no joke, it was like all of these eyes follow you and it's like nudge nudge wink wink get a look at that and it feels like you're just a giant slab of meat in a butcher shop and you're on a hook and you're getting pushed through to whatever your destination is but oh wait there's this added aspect of this butcher shop being full of hungry wolves that haven't eaten in a long time so they're just licking their lips and drooling it really feels like, and I have told my counselors this, it really feels like no one's listening about that whole entryway. I mean, I can't be the only one who feels that way. And so why hasn't something been done about just not parading us by people who look like our rapist? I think that's an excellent question. And it's also one that's really been avoided because I know I've had that exact thought walking through there many times. And Something to look forward to is um, an, a future episode. My roommate from the VA from last Christmas, she and I are going to share what our experience was like, and it will keep you on the edge of your seat because it was horrible. It was absolutely horrifying. Honestly, that experience made me just determined to get better so that I could share stuff like this because I don't think anyone should be treated this way. You should be able to be beautiful and smart without being touched or commented on. Yes, absolutely. I, I don't see why that is such a problem. But I do think that it's changing because my nephew, he's just turned 18 and he's fully Gen Z. And he's so different from how teenage boys were when I was a teenager 
and he's different in the way that he understands that there's life and experiences outside of his own and he has a lot of empathy and his friends are like that too so it it things are changing i, I can definitely see it but it it's the people that are set in their ways and they've been getting away with stuff like this for a long time those are the people that need to change and stop veterans live a long time and you know because of our modern medicine there are veterans at the veterans hospital that are 90 years old we still yeah. have to deal with the mentality of the men that were there when we were there and even before we were there because they haven't went through any of these societal changes and there's also this mentality where they're like I mean, we're not painting women with their boobs out on planes anymore. So, like, what else do you want? Right. And that's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. Right. So let's talk about your research study. What led to its development and what are you trying to find? I hadn't done therapy the whole time, those whole 40-something years. And so I decided to get a doctorate degree when the teaching gig didn't work out for me. I said, well, I'll go back and get a doctorate degree. And as I started looking at different subject matter that I, that I had an expertise in, this one was the one. And I feel like it was my therapy. And it showed me that I can take this thing that happened, these things that happened bad to me and turn them into something good, something positive which I had kind of done with all of my, I have had a lot of success in my life because I'm hard-headed and determined. <laughs> I love that. My grandmother told me that. She's like, you have been hard-headed since you were a baby. <laughs> Determination to overcome this is what got me into my research. And then just kind of weeding through it, I realized, you know what? You could use some therapy. And so that's what led me back to the VA to the telehealth. Was there a certain modality that had actually worked the best for you? You mean with the VA? Yeah, there's the exposure therapy, there's CBT, there's DBT. Yeah, we haven't even got to any formal kind of therapies yet. I went through a couple of counselors, as you know, at the VA, they're very transit. Yeah. I have gone through three, so I'm on my third one now, and um, she and I are still working on um, eating disorder. And so we haven't really went into any of the actual formal PTSD therapies because of my eating and sleeping disorders are kind of a priority right now because they usually lead me to be sick. Oh. Eventually, I'm sure she will come up with a more formal treatment. Again, I've only been in this program for about a year and a half working with the VA with a counselor, a psychiatrist, and a psychologist. So I'm kind of new to getting help. It took a lot of years for me to get validated through the VA for me to feel okay about using their services, I guess is what I'm thinking. If I'm going to get 100%, then I need to do something to get better. That's what I'm doing with my research is I'm looking for other veterans who feel like they've been betrayed after their sexual assault through either by the command or by the VA or by any institution that should have been helping them. And by that doing that, I feel like I'm going to be adding to the research that already exists because that's the stuff that goes up to Capitol Hill. They take the research that people do and they look at that to find out what exactly is happening. So I'm hoping with these stories, like your stories that you're getting here, you get the subtleties of what's happening and not just the a big wide brush stroke, but the actual small details of what causes 
that rape culture. That's so important. And I think it's something that people just really want to ignore. It's not even just a problem within the military, but it's something that's baked into our society. It's like people just going out and touching pregnant women's bellies, for example. Like there's no boundaries when it comes to women for some reason. That's a great example. <laughs> with the eating disorder perspective, um, I had my troubles with that growing up and while in the service. And since I've been in and out of treatment for almost a decade, I, I did notice a few things like some people overeat because they want to feel unattractive or undesirable because they're blaming themselves and thinking that's what caused their assault. And it was like a form of protection so that they they could prevent something like that from happening to them again. And on my end, I just got really thin because the only thing that I could truly control was food. Yes. And then sleep-wise, there were the nightmares, the sweating, and even now, like last night, I went to sleep with my head on the pillows at the top of the bed, but I woke up with my head at the foot of the bed, and I have no idea how I got there. It's so strange. I have a bar over my door, because it's a double door, so I have a... Mm iron bar that goes over my door and two dogs that sleep with me so yeah when I lived in Houston I, I really don't know what triggered it but like I would I think I, it was sleepwalking but like I would get up and leave my apartment in the middle of the night and I did not live in a good area and I also didn't even know I was doing it like the only reason I found out was because of my ring doorbell but it's really strange, isn't it, how all of these psychological issues and, and symptoms just kind of manifest in all of these really unique ways. And that's also, like you said, where you can't really treat MST with a broad brushstroke because it plays out so differently in people's lives. And just to comment on a trigger that really made me want to get some therapy is I had a shoulder injury. From push-ups, obviously. I'm also a fitness trainer, so I do a lot of push-ups or did a lot of push-ups. I had to get an MRI and I went into the MRI machine. I had never had one before. I did not know what to expect. They put the headphones on me. They put the weighted blanket on me. They pushed me in and they said, don't move. That was it. Get me out of here. Get me out of here. Get me out of here. As soon as I didn't have control, so I tried again. I made another appointment to an open MRI. Went down there, got it in. He said, hold still. That was it. I just left. I got, I got, I said, get me out, get me out, get me out. Went and got dressed, didn't talk to him, just walked out, went in the car, cried for an hour in the parking lot. So that's how I kind of knew that I had a lot of unresolved issues. Mm -hmm. Is that that was kind of the like, okay, you have a lot of things going on that you have been pushing down. And when you lose control, you don't like it. For anyone that's listening that might be dealing with unresolved trauma issues, is there anything that you would share with them to do or, or for their families to reach out to? Yeah, for sure. I would say that the telehealth is very helpful. You don't have to leave your home. You can request a female, which I have done. Both of mine are female. I've also, I've also on some meds. 
because I just needed help with regulating that anxiety and that kind of like impulsiveness to avoid. So we finally got me on a good, some good meds that allow me time to think. So I would say it's never too late to reach out for help. And that at the VA that I use, which my counselors don't live anywhere near me because it's telehealth. So it doesn't have to be in your area either. It just needs to be someone in at your local hospital will, you know, help you find the right person. An MST coordinator is a perfect person to do that. And they have them at the hospital. Community care has been great for me because I told you I don't go to the hospital. Using community care is also another avenue. But I really do encourage people to try to use the VA's telehealth because those counselors specifically deal with military sexual trauma. They know the military culture. They understand why we make the decisions we do. They understand our jargon. And so that's what you find in the civilian world. Sometimes they don't understand why we are so devoted and loyal to the military and they don't understand our patriotism and kind of that yin and yang of how we're feeling like and this way we hate it this way we love it still and they don't understand yeah. that but the va has gotten some counselors that they train to know our jargon and understand our culture isn't that such a weird dichotomy it's like this institution ruined my life but i love it <laughs> yes I mean, you can see behind me that I have all this military stuff. Yeah. I do remember that when I got out, I did not want anything to do with uniforms. I didn't want to see them. Flight suits in particular would trigger me. But but now that I'm doing better, it I don't really have that same startle response. Like, I don't do the double take or feel like I'm going to jump out of my skin. And I think a lot of that battle is actually figuring out what your triggers are, like being able to identify them really well, and then also having some practice coping skills that will get you through those situations. So that might be medication, that might be breathing techniques, it might be art therapy, equine therapy, like you just have to try it all and find out what works for you. Yes. Yeah, so t through telehealth, I'm also able to access yoga. Oh, okay. And Tai Chi. So you can do those in your living room. And there's, there's a whole menu of whole health things that you can pick from and set up through telehealth. So really encourage people to reach out for those things because they do give you those breathing techniques that you've talked about and I, and you also included them in our packet and it just gives you a good distraction when you're when you have anxiety you know something else yes. to concentrate on and just kind of momentarily get your mind off of that thing and then if you're anything like me in attention deficit i have forgotten what it was <laughs> There was one that I had learned on YouTube, actually. It was called, like, the butterfly technique. I was looking through different meditations and things, but it's like you cross your hands over your chest, kind of like a butterfly, and you pat your fingers on your collarbone. And although it looks odd, it works. I have seen that one, too, and I have used it. That is a good one. Yeah, it's a, a really great one. What I'll do is I'll, I'll probably make one of those TikToks or YouTube videos to share it with our listeners so that they can start to use it too. So in terms of personal growth and just this journey that you have been on since you were 17, 
is there anything that you would like to share with your 17-year-old self and, and let her know? Well, I think I feel now that I am very strong and resilient and a great, a great problem solver. I never did have to go back home again. And I did have about a 12 years stint where I didn't even communicate with my family. So and that's another one of those markers for the trauma is that you lose your relationships with people. You know, it can be romantic or family and I lost both. And I want to tell her, you're not your trauma. You're going to be successful. It seems like you're broken, but you don't even know the tools that you have. I would have known that when I was that age, I may have recovered. I wouldn't say I'm totally recovered now, but I would have recovered faster to my feet if I mm -hmm. would have understood that I had skills that were going to help me. It took a long process to find those little pieces of success to build on. Those little steps are everything when it comes to taking your life back. So if one of our listeners right now might be in their experience with MST, whether that's harassment or they've been assaulted, what advice could you give them to just help them hold on to the next day? First thing we have to remember is that we didn't cause it. You know, it's not our fault. It's someone else's behavior that's doing this. I would say that we can't take it on as our own personal fault. And I think that's one of the main things that kept me from getting help is that I felt because of our society, there were things I could have done to avoid it and I didn't yeah. do it. But then I have to remind myself, you were 17. You should not be expected to have those skills. I would say that it takes people like you who are helping us work through these stories and listening to people's stories off your podcast gives people like you're not alone. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, I struggle with that part of saying, I'm so grateful to hear your story because at the same time, I hate that you have a story. Yes. But I think there's some, there's some therapeutic value in knowing that there was similar things that happened to other people and it wasn't their fault either. And acknowledging that we all acknowledge each other as knowing that we didn't cause this. It was a behavior from another person who couldn't control themselves, not you. That's, that's what I would say about that is just that you are not your trauma. Mm -hmm. And it's like the second you internalize that and ball up that old identity and throw it away, it's, it's like you're free again. You're not the trauma. Someone did this to you. I think that we have to keep reminding ourselves that someone did this to us and it wasn't our fault. We didn't ask for it. We didn't, we didn't consent to it. And it doesn't matter how they thought we consented because we didn't move or we didn't fight. That's all part of a survival mechanism. And I think being educated about what the normal reactions are when you're being assaulted is important. So you can realize that your reaction was the normal reaction, no matter what it was. People shouldn't be judged by their grieving or how they grieve, and they shouldn't be judged by how they process their trauma or how they protected themselves. Education, I think, in this particular area is so important, and it really helped me identify the new J, yeah. the resilient J, the one who can do stuff and can protect myself. 
But I do have a lot of those idiosyncrasies of not going out late at night, try to be in by, by nighttime. I have lots of cameras, I have yeah. an alarm system. I mean, you know, I do, I don't want to say that I don't protect myself in other ways because I do. And it's just part of the trauma, working it out, yeah. feeling yeah. safe, controlling. <laughs> yeah, it's just an aspect of control, but I, everyone does want to feel safe. Like that's one of your basic needs in Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? I think that's like the very first step. So if you want to get to self-actualization, you do have to have safety, yeah. Yes. And since you've been able to watch the military change since the late 70s up until now, like personally, I think that we're headed in the right direction, but it's still, it doesn't really meet the mark. Like I, it's kind of hard to explain, like, yes, steps forward are being taken, but also at the same time, it does feel like we're running backward. Yes. I feel like the, the big move of them changing who has the prosecution power is a step in the right direction. But I also feel like many of the problems that a lot of survivors went through were before that process, the reporting process. I don't see a lot of things being done in that reporting process, such as maybe having an entity that's just for that, like a hotline of some sort that you don't have to go through any military police or any military entity, because that seems to be a stopper. Yeah. And it feels like they could stop you from reporting because they are part of the military. And that's what I noticed when I looked over the legislation is that it still all points back towards the government entity itself. And we know that there can be cover-ups. There have been cover-ups. And that's kind of what's kept this perpetuating these 50, almost over 50 years. I can only account for my own service, but I know that Vietnam nurses went through it as well, that they were also sexually assaulted. So it's been going on for a long time. And this is a very small progress, in my opinion, that yeah. they've made in 50 years. Oh, I absolutely agree. Instead of kicking out people that come forward or pinning them with all of these mental health disorders, like borderline personality disorder is one in particular, is what has replaced that histrionic personality disorder diagnosis. And that one, you don't even get any kind of disability percentage for that one. You just get a big old fat goose egg. But in these situations, there's all of these people that are simply testing boundaries. And when you kick out someone whose boundaries have been tested, you are letting that boundary tester, that, that line stepper, you're letting them know that they can keep getting away with this stuff and they can keep upping the ante and escalating this. And then next thing you know, they're a flag officer or there's a death and this thing just keeps perpetuating itself it stays baked into the culture and that's the problem it needs to be nipped in the bud and i think that it's because of our minority status in the military that they have been able to do that i do think you should have to be qualified to do the job that you're supposed to have but at the same time there are plenty of women out there who can do these jobs 
And so we need more women leadership. We actually need more women in the military, but you're not making it look attractive when you're not protecting us. So there's kind of a oxymoron there kind of because you need more women, but women don't feel safe. So you're able to keep those numbers down. When I went in the military, it was 10% women and now it's 18%. That's not a lot in 50 years. No, it isn't. No. As you can see, if we don't aren't represented, then our feelings and our needs aren't represented. I feel that's problematic right there is that maybe they need incentives for women to join the army. I mean, they give bonuses for airborne. They give bonuses for special forces. Maybe you give bonuses if a woman would join. There's just ways that the way that it's structured right now, it's not structured for us to um, be able to report even though they've done all this stuff and written a lot of things on paper. It's kind of like when they write no guns allowed, but there's a shooting. There's a whole lot of legislation, but there's not a lot of follow through right. and implementation. I do think that they're doing a lot more to recognize it. Okay, we've recognized it. And I just don't think that they can figure out ways to eliminate it or even to make it decrease because the numbers are higher. They are, and it seems like they climb a little more each year. And I have to ask, since you have this background in psychology, I've always wondered this, but do you think that people that are predatory in nature are drawn to things like serving in the military? Absolutely. Especially people who are aggressive, like they have an aggressive personality. You got to remember that when you're a man coming in the military, you know, you see an opportunity to use your gun skills or your hunting skills or, you know, you've already got some skills and you may have already had people in your family that were military. You've watched lots of army and you know, just military shows and you've gotten yourself all hyped up. I'm going to join the military. You played army when you were little. So I do think it attracts a certain predator. And just for the record, there used to be a military or jail choice for some yeah. time. So just think mm -hmm. about that. And right now you can still get a waiver if you have a criminal record, if you can get enough people to sign off on your character. Cause I looked it up last night to, to see, and you can, there's still waivers available for criminals. Is that the, you know, when you're, when you're drawing them in, and at the same time, putting young girls in, it's almost like you're creating this Petri dish for it to happen. Yeah, it's like creating the perfect conditions, unfortunately. Well, moving forward, what, in your opinion, would make women feel more safe and respected and valued in the military so that they would actually want to join in the future? I think we need to do a better job of screening people who are coming in the military. There needs to be some psych evaluations before you go in the military, not as you're coming out to see if you have trauma before. There needs to be a better check, like security checks before you go in, no waivers for crimes. And I think that there should be a lot of education for all people who come in the military about the risks of sexual assault in the military like you shouldn't think it's going to be it could be somebody else they should really outline i mean obviously that's not a great marketing ploy if they're going to point out that you could die or be sexually assaulted is not going to be great marketing for them 
they're going to go with that education thing and you're learning a skill. But I think if they want to be more responsible, that they could be educating people before they go in the military and they wouldn't end up like I was not knowing what to do as a 17 year old. Who can I turn to? If you don't know these resources exist until you get to permanent party or even how to access them, you got to think about in training, you don't have a car, you don't have transportation, you're dependent on the command. So that education needs to happen ahead of time before you sign the dotted line that you are aware that these statistics exist and that you understand where, what your resources are if something would happen to you. So I feel like that needs to happen before you go in, not after you're already in. And it probably needs to be done by somebody who's not in the military. Yeah. There's really a bias there. There's really a, like a conflict of interest there. Yes. It, it just is. Maybe they need a contractor or something, but there is a conflict yeah. of interest when you are the judge, jury, prosecutor, reporter, educator, trainer. When you're controlling every aspect of that soldier's life, there's bias. What's the expression where it's like, we investigated ourselves and we found nothing wrong? <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just wild. It's very, very frustrating. Since I grew up in a military community and I was just surrounded by this all the time, I don't think it ever crossed my mind that someone would be capable of this or that someone was a victim of this. And there are several families that my family has stayed very close with since um, I was about five or six years old. Like my, one of my mom's best friends, um, I just went to visit her earlier this year in January, and she told me what her life was like before she joined the Air Force and while she was serving, and I was just blown away. I had no idea she went through this. And I've known this this woman since I was a very young girl, like since kindergarten. And that was when it truly started to dawn on me just how pervasive this problem is. It's that common. And it felt like my stomach was going to fall out of me. Like it was so disheartening. And I know what my reactions are when I see another young man or young woman or a group of people that have an MST experience so bad that it makes national news. Yes, that's awful. It's heartbreaking. But then also seeing it through the lens of it was the lady down the street or it was the guy three houses down or even my next door neighbor has had this experience. It really brought it home. Yes. This problem is way bigger than what hits the news every three or four years. And I don't think the general public knows that or understands that. That's that's really good information because that is exactly what it felt like in my research. Every so many years, there was a tail hook. There was a Air Force Academy. And so the rest of the time, the civilians thought that everything was okay, that it was just these isolated incidents when it was actually ongoing everywhere, and these were just extreme examples. So yeah, that was a very good point. And that's one of the goals of this podcast is just to keep this issue in front of people so that they understand that, yes, this is every day, all day, 
for people in the service. And there was a documentary I'd seen a few years ago. Well, I guess now almost 10 years ago, it was the Invisible War where it was similar to this, where, where people were sharing just their MST experiences and it was horrifying. But that's kind of the problem with the documentary though, is that you've seen it once and you understand the issue in that moment. And if you see it again, it doesn't quite have the same effect. It's like if you go to a comedy show on Tuesday and then if you go to that same comedy show on Wednesday and the comic does the same set, the jokes aren't really funny. They don't have the same impact because you know what's going to happen. So with people sharing new stories each week, whether it's from the 70s or the 90s or even this right. year, that's what's going to have the impact of people understanding that, that pretty much every second of the day, somebody is under duress in this situation. Yeah. Okay, now it's time for my final question. Um, what would you say to your assailant now that you have lived your life after making so many sacrifices and having such trauma and then living in pain for such a chunk of your life? What would you say to them now that you've lived? I think just like what I had said to you before is that they didn't break me, that I was resilient. I made it through and I was successful, just like the goals I had set when I first came in the military. I wanted to make it on my own. And I'm nothing else if I'm not determined. Even my counselor has said, I'll tell you one thing, you have got commitment all wrapped up. If you commit to something, girl, you stick with it. So I think that's what I would tell them is that what you did to me, it says more about you than it says about me. You were the criminal. And I overcame the fact that you hurt me and you did keep me down for 12 years. But at the same time, it built character and it helped me overcome things and be a good problem solver, like I said, and then understand that I am worthy. I am worth something. I'm smart. So when you overcome something like this and you're able to make something good out of it, it starts giving you back your identity and your courage, confidence. And like I said, it's not a fast process. It's a slow moving process because you do have to get past the fact that maybe you could have done something to stop it because that's just our human nature to take blame for something. But that's what I would tell them is that you didn't break me. Your behavior was your behavior and I was strong enough to overcome and help other people. Thank you so much for sharing that. Oh my goodness. Yeah, let's just take a second to encourage anyone that might be listening that even if this assault or any aspect of MST happened to you, whether it was yesterday or decades ago, you are still a worthwhile person. Your life matters. Yes. Your story matters. And there are so many people rooting for you. So if you've reached a point in your life where you're ready to either come forward and report, or even if you're just ready to, to finally take that first step and get help in therapy, there are yeah. so many people supporting you in that decision. And I can tell you that I've done a lot of research before I did this research on if telling your story is therapeutic. 
because a lot of people feel like it's going to be very triggering for them. But I'm going to tell you that all the research that I looked at, 90% of people who participate in things like this, this podcast, or in research, when they're done, find how therapeutic it was because they finally got to say their truth. And someone who understood them validated that truth. And that's the first thing of getting better is letting it out because holding it down is what can make you have all those physical ailments and have the problems and the issues that rear their ugly heads. Mm-hmm. But the first part of it is being validated. Well, you heard it here. And if you want to participate in Silence Voices, go ahead and send me an email at info at silencevoicesmst.com. And I will send you over an information packet on what you need to do in order to come on the show. And Jay, I just want to say such a big thank you to you for for coming on the show and sharing your truth and your light and your story with us. If there was a person or organization that you think has really helped you through this process, please shout them out so that our listeners can also go look them up and get some help themselves. Well, I would say that the VA telehealth has been instrumental in getting me through talking about this, researching it, and just kind of ripping off that scab a little bit and Mm. understanding that there's people out there who can help you and you just have to reach out for that help. So my saving grace has been the VA telehealth. Jay, I feel like you are the embodiment of that quote where it's like, though she is small, she is mighty. And I am so grateful for you coming on the show and speaking with us yet again. Thank you so much. And I'm really looking forward to see what your your study finds. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. All right, everyone. That was our interview with Jay. Isn't she just wonderful. What a treasure of a human being. If you want to reach out to her and send a word of encouragement or learn more about her research, go over to the silencevoicesmst.com website. And when you click on listen online, there is a button beneath that says salute to survivors where you can share a message and I encourage you to do so just because it is very difficult to get on this show and bear your soul. So thank you again to Jay. Thank you listeners for your support. And we are now firmly in holiday season. So I encourage you as always to stay safe, be kind and take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to Silence Voices, Stories of MST. Your support means the world to us. To keep these important conversations going, we rely on your generosity. Consider donating to help us continue to shed light on this crucial issue. Visit our website at www.silencevoicesmst.com to contribute, get involved, and join our community. Together, we can make a difference. Stay tuned for more inspiring stories, and remember... Your voice matters.